Gee whiz. <laughs> My name's Charlie Bell, and I'm an alcoholic. And I can't tell you how happy I am to be here. This is really, I, I can't find anything wrong with the conference so far. It's just amazing. <laughs> Do you notice that all the seats are padded? This is not like AA. Usually the first three or four rows are padded, and the rest of us in the back there on those iron chairs. You know how <laughs> I'll just speak three or four hours here. My goodness, you know, you're, you're well rested. I'm a member in good standing of the Strange Camels Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, which meets in Slidell, Louisiana, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at precisely 7.07 p.m. You're all welcome. Some questions sometimes comes up about that 7.07. No one could decide on what the time we should meet, so we just averaged all the suggestions and we came up with 7.07. <laughs> Democratic and thought and action, right, Charles? <laughs> you know she had the concepts memorized? I was impressed. <laughs> uh, I'd really like to thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. The Midwest, the breadbasket. You know, I, I'm from, uh, I live in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, that's at the end of the Mississippi River, as you all know, and here you live in the breadbasket, you live in the what is it, the, the heart of mid-America. And uh, I've heard the Mississippi River compared to uh, the large intestine of mid-America, so you know where I'm from. <laughs> Just lucky me. <laughs> One thing about being from New Orleans, everybody's got a drinking story to tell you about visiting there. Yeah. Um, well, I'll get on with my story. Heck. Can't put it off any longer. Um, I was born in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. All right. Actually, a part of Dallas that was called Highland Park. For those of you that are familiar with Dallas, you know that immediately categorizes me as a snot and a snob. <laughs> uh, when I was a little boy, I thought everybody had uh, someone that drove the car and someone that fixed the food and someone that cleaned the upstairs and someone that cleaned the downstairs because that's the way I lived and that's the way most of my friends lived. And I want to tell you something, it's not a half bad way to live. You can get used to that in a <laughs> you can get used to that in a hurry. You know? <laughs> uh, my mother and father were kind and loving people. Uh, my father was originally from uh, Seattle, Washington, and he'd gone to school in Stanford University and gotten his PhD in geology. His father was a fairly successful man and he didn't go to work right away. He'd did a little playing, and uh, he entered a cross-country road race. And um, back then, um, in the uh, 20s, these road races would uh, have practically no rules, but generally the first rule was you'd start with your rear wheels in one ocean, and you'd end up with your front wheels in the other ocean, and first one there won. And he'd entered this and had this uh, mechanic with him, and he scooted across the country. Uh, and got the, he's taking the southern route, sort of paralleling the old uh, Southern Pacific Railway. And he turned over in Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, wrecked the car, tore the one clean shirt he had. <laughs> he wired home for money, and he got a return wire that said simply, get a job. <laughs> but, and it's uh, my blessing that he didn't get a job right away. He instead put a group of investors together, and he went into... East Texas, right across the border there, and he, he hit the Hawkins oil field, for which I'm eternally grateful. It certainly rounded the corners off for me. 
When I came along in Dallas, uh, I was born... Um, well, one of my earliest memories is of Pearl Harbor, so that sort of sets my age. And uh, that, was, that was an earth-shaking thing for me. I remember it was, the, it was the first time I saw adult men cry, you know, and that really upset the kid, you know, a little kid. But my parents did a lot of entertaining, and uh, it was always exciting around the house. Uh, some of my early memories are of these magic things that happened on the weekends often. They were called cocktail parties. It seemed like people got a little more joyful and a little happier, and their tone of voice would go up, and I just marveled at this. And They had some sort of magic elixir that they drank that seemed to bring this on. And father had all kinds of interesting people that would come by the house, and I remember uh, there was one guy in particular, he seemed to... I used to go out and play pitch and catch with him in the backyard, and he always wore khaki pants, uh, khaki outfits, and had a big fedora. And uh, I don't know, I identified with this guy. He was just... Uh, more my age group, and he went on to more magnificent things. His name was Howard Hughes, and uh, he was just one of those remarkable people. But uh, I eventually went, went away to uh, start school, and uh, I brought home a, a gold star. I'll never forget that. Uh, and all of a sudden, the adults just sort of, they were just so enamored with this gold star. And I thought, well, this, this will be my job in life. That's what I'll do. I'll just go out and collect gold stars. And, School was easy for me in high school, and I had a, I have a condition that's called eidetic imagery. It's like photographic memory, and uh, I never told anybody that because I, I thought they'd see that I was getting it sort of too easy, but I managed to make all kinds of A's and all the honor societies and things, so uh, I'd bring these gold stars home, and by golly, anything I wanted, uh, every time I brought a gold star home, it'd be like, what color of pony would you like this week? And uh, I, I liked that. Uh, I, unlike some alcoholics uh, in high school, I, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed people, and uh, I uh, always felt a part of, and I liked girls, and everything worked fine. And there came that time. <laughs> there, there came that time when um, when I had my first drink. A lot of people talk about their first drink. I, I remember mine. Uh, it wasn't like some people describe when they had that drink and it just went out and opened up like an umbrella, and they felt the warmth and the. Didn't have that magic effect over me. I, I had to work at it. I had to work at it, but uh, I remember that first serious drink. It had to be a serious drink because it had fruit in it and an umbrella. So I'm sure <laughs> that had to be serious. That's about the only thing I could gag down at the time. Probably a vodka Collins. And a... But I do know that uh, there was something pleasant about that. I felt uh, felt grown up, and I couldn't wait to go to college and be grown up. And it finally came that time, and off I went to college. I went to college that colors are red and white. I was a member of the Big Eight. Uh, <laughs> but I went to OU. <laughs> I was back in the early 50s, and old Bud Wilson used to beat you like a drum, like a runaway stepchild. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I was sent up there to become a, become a petroleum engineer. It seemed like a good thing at the time. I have an older brother. Uh, he was a, had his degree in geology. My mother had her degree in geology. And, uh, I thought they had his doctorate in geology, so they decided petroleum engineers what they need in the family. So I went up and collected those gold stars and just enjoyed school so much and enjoyed the, all the all the things. Joined the right fraternities, did the right things, and managed to get two good, two degrees, a wife and a child along the way. Um, but when I graduated, uh, that degree wasn't in petroleum engineering. I had a degree in 
psychology and a degree in history. You know, you take those two talents at that time from those two degrees, and I'd probably qualify to either sell used cars or insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I opted to do what I do, and that's collect gold stars. So when I graduated with those two degrees, I went to college. I got a master's in mathematics from Harvard. And what I do then? Well, I went on to school. I got a master's, master's in psychology. Graduated with that with four degrees, and what I do? I decided to go to school. <laughs> I got a PhD in experimental psychology. And along the way, I'd become interested in research and things. I was well published. I'm sure you're all familiar with all the research I was doing. <laughs> Probably have a copy on your coffee table at home. My master's research in psychology was on the effect of ionizing radiation on bar pressing behavior in the white rat. <laughs> I, I told you you were familiar with it. <laughs> uh, I found early on that as long as I was collecting gold stars and doing these things, that if I'd do something really obscure, so obscure that even my professors wouldn't know what it was about, that I could just sort of float through, you know, and I was thinking the past least resistance. My uh, PhD research, I'm sure you're familiar with that. The perception of geomagnetism in the Belgian homing pigeon. <laughs> Real practical stuff. I graduated with this PhD, and what did I do? I went to school. I collect gold stars. I did a postdoctoral at Oxford University in England. By this time, I had two children, and that wife towed them along. But as long as I was doing this, checks were coming from home, and things were fine, you know. But sort of a Oh, covertly, I got the message. And it was like that telegram that said, get a job. <laughs> and so I added up all my assets. And what could I do? I had these five degrees. You know? And sure enough, it came to two things. I could still sell those used cars, which is an honorable profession. Or I could teach, and I opted to teach. I came back to this country, and I sent out my... Vitae, which is sort of Ph.D. for resume, sent it to, sent it to a number of uh, departments of psychology around the country, and I attended a couple of the professional conventions and uh, lined up some interviews, and I lined up five interviews, and I thought, well, this is their lucky day. I'm available for those folks. <laughs> Along this way, my drinking had sort of progressed, but I, I had no problem, you know. I remember that first interview. It was at a school called Auburn in Alabama. And I flew into Columbus, Georgia. Auburn didn't have an airport. I, I don't think they still have one, but uh, I flew into Columbus and rented a car. And my instructions were to show up at the Department of Psychology there at Auburn at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I showed up. And uh, Unbeknownst to me, they had decided, psychologists are weird ducks, as you know, and they had uh, lined up a thing called a stress interview, and they were going to try this out for the first time. And I walked into the chairman's office, and he said, well, how did you find us? And I said, well, you were on the map, and it just sort of went downhill from there. <laughs> uh, he says, well, fine. He says, you're teaching a class in five minutes. And we walked down the end of this corridor and went into this big amphitheater, and there sat all the staff and all the graduate students, and I sort of realized what they were doing. And so I just reared back there and gave them an hour of everything they wanted to know about bar-pressing behavior and the white rat and ionizing radiation. <laughs> I ended up that day, I ended up teaching four different classes and 
going into the lab and showing that I was familiar with the equipment. And it was just like one test after another, you know, and a, rarely a smile. God, I'll never forget that lunch. It was like a greasy sandwich and pre-sweetened iced tea, and I just don't like sugar in my iced tea. And it was like, it was like an arduous thing. And finally, 5 o'clock came, and we were once again in the, in the chairman's office, and several of the other staff members were there. And I remember him saying, uh, you know, the azaleas are in bloom this time of the year, Charles. And he said, would you like to go out and see the neighborhood? I think you and your family would just love this city, or would you rather go to my house and have a drink? <laughs> Some choice. <laughs> Not surprisingly, I opted to go have a drink at his house. And we get up, up there, and uh, you know what? I, I don't think we noticed, uh, particularly in the early stages, our drinking style compared to theirs. And apparently after I'd belted three of these down real quick to get back in the swing of things, and I, I was holding far, forth on my theoretical position and emotion and motivation theory and probably everything else that they, they needed to know, one of these... Uh, Assistant professors looked up and said a sort of weird thing. He says, you know, uh, Dr. Bartell, he says, uh, we're very, very proud here at Auburn that uh, we do not allow the sale of alcoholic beverages within two miles of the campus. Well, scratch Auburn. (laughs) (laughs) You know, even at that time, I didn't realize how alcohol was affecting my behavior, but... I stood up and said, well, I thanked him very much and excused myself, got in that rental car, went back to Columbus and took the first available flight out. <laughs> My next interview was at the University of Washington, then I went out and interviewed at Berkeley. I want to tell you, this was 1966 and Berkeley was happening. You know, it was, it was exciting. <laughs> but I, I don't know whether I could have taken all the FBI and CIA scrutiny that was going on there at the time. And I went down and had a job interview at uh, Southern Cal, and boy, I'd never seen legs that reached that high and hair that was that blonde in my life, and I I seriously considered that, but I had one other interview. I'd lined up five interviews, and I thought, well, I owed it, and got in this plane, and I landed in an airport called Moisan Field, and that's the name of the airport, New Orleans, Louisiana. I was riding in in that taxi cab and asked a few questions about the city, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I had inquired, for instance, what the drinking hours were there, and they said, remember the cabbie was a little non-plus bang. He said, what do you mean, cap? I said, well, when do they close the bars? And he says, they don't. <laughs> it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I thought, this is civilization. This is what I've been looking for. <laughs> I had no particular instructions to show up there at Tulane, but I showed up about 10.30 the next morning, and... Uh, the chairman of the department said, well, let's do lunch. And I remember he ordered a martini. And this was in the faculty dining room. <laughs> <laughs> On the tables, they had crafts of wine, and I inquired about this, and he said, well, that's compliments. That's one of the perks of the faculty dining room. That's free. I said, one o'clock that afternoon, I signed a contract to teach Tulane University. <laughs> I'd like to stand up here and tell you about an illustrious career as a lecturer in the psychology department at Tulane and all the research I'd done. You see, at that point, I had been successful in publishing, and I'd published uh, 55 times by that time. And this was the age of publish and perish, and what they were expecting was not a great lecturer. They were expecting someone that could grind out three or four papers a year and help put them on the map research-wise. And, uh, I'd like to tell you about all the things I published there, but it was absolutely zip. 
Drinking had already established my lifestyle. Any research I'd done from that point on tended to be from bar stool to bar stool. I had to investigate the local color first. I moved my family down there and set in to do this. And that was 1966. In 1969, I walked in that chairman's office and I asked him if I could have a year's sabbatical. And he asked me what for. And I said, well, my research hadn't been doing running well. Only I had to, my obligation as assistant professor was to teach nine hours a semester. And I had all my classes scheduled for Tuesday and Thursday. Leave the rest of my time for the research. I'd go into the lab, but I'd just piddle around and dry lab things. I wasn't doing any real research. And... Uh, Drinking was getting more and more involved. It was hard to even show up for those classes on Tuesday and Thursday. And I suggested a sabbatical, and I was quite serious. I said, I would like to really concentrate on my, my research and get back into it. And uh, almost surprisingly, and with some relief, he agreed to this, but he said, you know, you can't have it with pay. And I said, that's all right. I don't, I don't want the money. I, I just want the opportunity to use the laboratory. And I never went back. And I never held a job from that time on. And I'm not proud of that. It's just the way things were. My drinking progressed to the point that my wife had left me by 1974. And uh, I embarked on a time of heavy drinking. I thought I was a jet setter. And my, both my mother and father passed away, and uh, they left me with a wherewithal to pretty much do what I wanted. And I proceeded to do that. I thought people envied me. Uh, And I drank to the bitter end that way. Lots of interesting things happened along the way. Uh, I remember uh, in order to get a Ph.D., you had to show proficiency you used to in two languages. And fortunately, they weren't Latin and ancient Greek like they were for centuries. But uh, I adopted to study both French and German. And I have a reading knowledge of both of those and can read them almost as well as I can read English. But I do not have an ear for dialect or accent, so <laughs> speaking it is very difficult for me. I can understand it, but I can't imitate. I think I'm imitating the sounds, but they just can't. I remember once in 1963, I was, had been asked to go to uh, Moscow, the International Congress of Psychologists, to present my research on bar-pressing behavior in the white rat. <laughs> I was flattered by this, and uh, I had accepted that proposal to do so. And uh, I got a letter from the State Department. And they said, there's no way we can keep you from going there, but we would advise you not to go. You know, in 63, that was the height of the Cold War. Things were going on. And there was radiation in the title of these research publications I was spurting out, so they thought I had some big secret thing of telling an alcoholic not to go. You know, I made immediate arrangements. I was just told to get to Helsinki, Finland. I got to Helsinki and was met by a committee there, and they took me across the border into Russia and took the train in the into Moscow and uh, the night before I was to deliver that paper they said uh, Cold War once again they said oh by the way uh, English is not one of the accepted languages here we do not have facilities for you to present in English so you'll have to present another language and I said uh, well my Russian's a bit shaky uh, don't laugh I knew five words four of them for different kinds of vodka <laughs> <laughs> I learned something on that train getting in there but uh, I opted to give it, uh, I said, I can, I can deliver it in either French or German. And they, they said, uh, we'd appreciate it if you'd deliver it in German. And so I wrote, sat down that night and wrote out a 
hasty translation. And probably pretty fair, and uh, I got up to deliver it the next day, and I was carrying forward very proud of myself, delivering it in another language, you know. And everybody just had this nonplussed, sort of confused look on their face. And I sat down and sort of polite applause, and I found out later they didn't understand the damn thing I'd said. <laughs> and I was a bit hurt by that, because uh, that research, I'd won an outstanding research award in, in the United States two years before for that stuff. And, but, um, you know, years later, I, I had uh, cause to use that fluent German once again. I was on 8th Avenue in uh, New York City at a bar called Sullivan's. And I was talking to these two men in my fluent German, and uh, they both uh, reminded me, it just took me back to um, Moscow, because they had that sort of dazed look on their face, but carried forth, and you know, it was that typical alcoholic behavior. I'd buy them around, they'd buy me the around, I'd buy them around. Eventually, they got up and sort of left, uh, sort of dazed, and uh, I thought that uh, obviously they just couldn't hold their liquor. And the bartender came over and said, sir, what were you speaking? And I saw a German, of course, and he said, well, they were speaking Polish. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I mention that because um, I remember at the time, it's something, they talk about those moments of clarity. Something struck me in my heart at that time. That I hadn't even noticed that, you know, that I was obviously losing it. I remember walking out on that sidewalk and... Uh, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember tears running down my face and not having an answer. Just, and for about 15 minutes, I was just thunderstruck, and then I, that moment of clarity left me, and I wandered off into the night and uh, continued drinking some years after that. The remarkable disease we share. The wonderful thing is that we share a common solution. In 19... Uh, Seventy-six. My wife walked into the into the house, and I'd made a lot of investments, and some of them paid off real well for me. But uh, I'd invested in an FM radio station. She walked in with the manager, which I thought was strange, and I thought it was strange that she was holding his hand. <laughs> and she informed me that uh, they had fallen in love and that they were leaving. And uh, at that moment, I had a husband-in-law on my hands. You know. <laughs> Now, my parents, I never remember my parents raising their voice to each other. I remember always a loving uh, relationship, but I remember them disagreeing. And I can remember so many times them sitting down and discussing in a logical manner the problem and coming to compromise. And that had always been my role model for, for marriage and everything. And I'd never raised my voice around the house or anything like that. I said, wait a minute, let's be adults about this. Let's be adults. I said, uh, let's, uh, let's sit down and talk this over. And I sat down, and I was mild, mind running a mile a minute, and I came up with this brilliant suggestion that what we need to do is not do anything hasty. Uh, we'll just try a trial separation. I'll move out of the house for a while, and, and we'll see how it works out. You know, that, and uh, they agreed to this, and the next morning I move out, and uh, I get a place to stay and everything, and the morning after that, there's a bang, bang, bang at my front door to, five in the morning, I go down and open this thing up, and I'm served with papers, and those papers said that I had deserted my family and deserted my children, and thus I was uh, set up for a period of separation and divorce, which is rather difficult in the state of Louisiana at that time. There were only two things that 
you could be divorced for. One was desertion and the other was uh, adultery. I hadn't been the one that had adultered, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I was furious about it. I just, I filled with rage, you know. The reason I was so mad is that to set this whole thing up, they had to have predicted my behavior. They were the psychologists. To have the process server and they had this thing probably a month ahead of time. They had the attorneys, they had everything lined up. All they needed was for me to get an address, and I'd provided it for them. So filled with this rage and anger, I did the thing that a drunk would do. I went to Hong Kong. I don't know. <laughs> that very day, I went to Hong Kong. I... <laughs> well, I called my lawyer first and informed him that to pay anything he wanted in alimony but keep the child support to a minimum. And I thought I'd taken care of things. I didn't show up at court or anything. I'm here to tell you that's a bad idea. <laughs> but I was in Hong Kong. I come back six months later and he informs me that lucky me, my, uh, my alimony is zero and my child support is $1,000 a child. And that was quite a bit back in the, in the 70s. And so I remember paying that religiously over time and I paid the child support. You know, the last, the last check I gave was for my daughter when she turned 18. I have two children, a son and a daughter. And um, I remember writing that check out, and my wife says, Look, you've been rather noble about this and everything. Please don't give me that last check. And I thought, Aha. Mm. I'm not going to give her that last check. She, she can tell all of her friends that, uh, you know, he didn't pay all of his child support. And I remember writing it out and thrusting it upon her, and she's leaving, and I'm feeling sort of noble about that and sort of kicked back and smug. And my daughter says, You know, Dad? I says, What? She says, You know, Charlie and I have been living with you for 10 years and it never dawned on me that I should go back to court but my life was manageable <laughs> well all those years I was seeing to it that my husband-in-law was wearing nice clothes <laughs> ah. drunks just do weird things Well, I did a lot of traveling, did a lot of things, and, uh, boy, I'm lucky my children didn't use me as an example to live their life. Toward the end of my drinking, though, it, I don't know when we go through that, I don't know when, but the last years of my drinking were painful, and I didn't have any other choice. I remember once, to prove that I wasn't an alcoholic, oh, I'd read a little bit about this when I studied psychology, you know, and uh, I thought, well, if I can quit... And, you know, living in a Catholic town, I thought that, uh, I thought that uh, this Lent was an interesting process. And I knew some heavy drinkers that would give up liquor for Lent. And I thought, that's just amazing. So Lent was coming along, and I just gave up drinking. I thought this would be a splendid idea. And for 24 hours, I shook. And I remember getting cold chills and things. But I made it 24 hours. And I was so proud of myself that I had a drink. <laughs> But that proved to me beyond a shadow of doubt that I wasn't an alcoholic because if I really had a drinking problem, I couldn't have lasted 24 hours <laughs> in the old port in the storm. Those last few years of drinking, it was just things happened. Things just would go wrong. I would, I would walk along and suddenly I would bump into a wall and it would seem so... And I, I have difficulty getting away from it. And it would take me three or four minutes to realize I'd fallen flat on my face. I'm serious. That's confusion. 
I drank, hopefully, this side of wet brain. But I was losing, uh, I was losing feeling in my extremities. I was having all kinds of problems which I would gloss over and try to repair with more alcohol. And, uh, finally came that fateful moment and, uh, when I woke up one morning, and it was the morning of December the 5th, 1987. And the last three years had just been painful. They'd just been agony. They'd just... I had at one time had had a number of people that people later called them my enablers, but I had like social secretaries and I had people that whose main purpose was to load me on and off of airplanes and keep up with all the practical aspects of life for me, pay the bills and things. And, and they had all left me in disgust, no matter what I would pay them. I was down to this one maid that's from uh, Rio that uh, was keeping me in clean clothes and that was about it. And uh, I woke up that morning and tried to get out of bed and I, <clears throat> I couldn't do it and I realized that I couldn't feel from my waist down and I realized that I was paralyzed and I was having trouble catching my breath and I was having to concentrate on breathing and I realized whoop my sympathetic nervous system is shutting down I realized I was dying and uh, I became radiantly happy at that moment I don't think I would have had the courage to kill myself but I was dying and it was a natural process and it was an answer the kids would be well provided for. I'd be out of their way. It was the perfect answer. But I didn't have any idea what time it was. I looked at the clock and it just said seven. You know, dang, those digital clocks. And I I couldn't make out whether it was a.m. or p.m. And I thought, God, if it's seven at night, this will be disastrous. Because I knew I couldn't move and I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't get to liquor. As long as I was dying, I had to have something to... I looked on the nightstand, and there was a half-full. I've always been an optimist. A half-full glass left over from the night before, or whenever. Because at that time, you know, I wasn't sleeping at night. And that's why I had no idea whether it was 7 in the morning, 7 at night. I'd just wake, and when I was awake, I'd drink. When I... That last year, I, food would be prepared for me, but it was just unpalatable, and I, I'd try to force myself to eat, and I just couldn't eat. And I was just taking in empty calories. I reached over and I got that glass of Jack Daniels. And I remember removing a cigarette butt that was in it. Look, I've always been a neatnik. <laughs> and I drank that drink. And it tasted great. It just went down just fine. And I set it down and immediately panic set in once again. Because now I have absolutely nothing to drink. And by that time I heard the back door open. And I was so pleased. I knew it was a maid. It was morning. And I waited. I didn't want to cry pitifully, you know. We have our pride. <laughs> eventually, she came in the room, and she sort of acted surprised. She said, oh, you're, you're still in bed. And I said, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have absolutely nothing planned today, and I plan to stay in bed all day. And she said, can I get you anything? And I said, yes. I would like two bottles of Jack Daniels, please. Normal seems like a reasonable request. And she said, all right, and left the room. Well, I'm sitting there waiting, getting rather impatient. I don't know what's taking so long. And about 20 minutes later, she walks back in, and there she has the two bottles of Jack Daniels, and she sets them down on the, on the nightstand. And I'm looking at them and realize they're both sealed, and I don't know whether I'll have the strength to open them. And these things are running, and I think, well, when she leaves, I'll, I'll just knock the, knock the neck off of one of them, and I'll drink it. 
I'd ask for two because I thought one would be enough. I could probably get through about half of one and my, my system would shut down entirely and I would die. It was that simple. And then I heard the back door open and she left. And my two children came in, which I hadn't seen for about six months. And uh, they were just ashamed to be around me. They hadn't said anything. And they walked in and my son said to me, in a way that no child should speak to their parents, he said, get out of that bed, you're going to the hospital. And I said, what for? <laughs> and I was serious. I said, it's Friday. December the 5th, 87 was a Friday. I said, the doctors won't be there. I promise to go Monday. I swear I'll go Monday. You see, I wasn't going to be here Monday, and that was an easy thing to say. He said, no, get out of bed. You're going to the hospital. You have no choice in this matter. And I started crying. You know, pride probably kills more alcoholics than anything else. I said, I can't get out of bed. My legs won't work. I'm paralyzed. And he came around and ripped back the covers. Told my daughter, says, packing some things. And I was embarrassed because I had wet the bed. Because I couldn't get out of bed. I remember he picked me up just like a rag doll. I was effortlessly, I marveled at his strength. <laughs> and it gets sort of blurry and I'm thrown into the back of this automobile and off we go to this hospital. Go into the emergency room and, you know, hospitals have all these important things to do for you when you get there. <clears throat> They've got to check your blood pressure and listen to your heart, weigh you, and um, check your credit. <laughs> all these important things. Well, I, I couldn't stand on a scale, and so they had this sling sort of affair to weigh me. And they were jacking me up on this thing, and it's, I later found out that that's what they used to weigh bodies at the morgue. You know, <laughs> it was very fitting. And the nurse called out my weight. She said, 105. I said, that can't be. I've weighed 175, 180 pounds all my life since I graduated from high school. 105, and then it gets a little hazy. See, I hadn't eaten for a year. And uh, during that time, I'm, I was aware that, that I was losing a little weight. Because <laughs> I'd look in the mirror... And I think, but if I eat Saturday, it'll all come back. I can understand people with anorexia and bulimia and these things where they look in and see someone normal looking back at them. Because uh, I had no idea I was that gone. I had uh, later the, the doctors explained to me that that was part of the problem with my nervous system and everything. That for some reason, I, I had, uh, once you lose all the fatty tissue, you start uh, digesting muscle tissue. And uh, I, I've done some hideous things. I've got bad heart condition. I've got a lot of things that I've tried to digest, and it's remarkable that I'm saying, well, I've, I've ballooned up to 150 pounds right now. You just look out, <laughs> and I'll never get any heavier. You know, I did some really serious things to myself. But I remember waking up, and uh, I look around, and uh, well, at least it's a private room. I'm thinking, this is nice, and a nurse comes in and says, oh, you're awake. I'm going to get your doctor, and she left, and finally my doctor came in, and she's a neighbor of mine, and she said, uh, Charles, uh, we've been talking it over, uh, your children and I have, and uh, we think you can profit from some alcoholic rehabilitation, and I'm going to arrange to have you move to another hospital. And I said, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. I had another moment of clarity, and it was two bottles of Jack Daniels on that 
nightstand, and I had to get to them some way. So I had to get out of her clutch, and I said, no, I said, uh, why don't you give me, and I'd heard about this, why don't you give me an abuse, and uh, I'll just quit drinking. Because I had to get to those two bottles. And she says, no, I, I don't think that would work. She says, I don't think you have any choice in this matter. We're going to move you. And I thought, God, she, she's so rigorous. And I thought, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you let me spend the night in the hospital, and I'll get a night's rest, and we'll talk about it in the morning. And she says, oh, how long have you been here? And I said, oh, four or five hours. She says, you've been here ten days. <laughs> Took a little wind out of my argument. <laughs> Where'd those other days go? I have no idea. And so I gave up. It was obvious she was just too stubborn. I'd escaped from the other place. And they loaded me in an ambulance, and I went off, and I went into my treatment center in style. I was carried in like a, a rajah on a sedan chair. <laughs> you know, I'd, go in, I'd go in on a stretcher. And they put me into this magical place called detox. You know, there are a lot of uh, treatment centers that do wonderful work. Most of them are halfway houses or non-profits. That, unfortunately, I had gone to a place that uh, tended to be money-oriented. I'm in detox uh, one week, and I see some people come and go, come and go. And I'm in there two weeks. I'm in detox three weeks. <laughs> And they're not telling me much, but they're checking blood pressure and all this stuff. And they're drawing blood every two days from me. And what I didn't know was I was dying. If they told me, I'd have just rolled over and died. But I had a purpose in life. I had to stay awake. I had, to, I had these two bottles of Jack Daniels, you see, and I had to get them. And apparently my life signs were all over the place. And I later found that they were trying to get me back into a regular hospital. You see, it's, the one thing a hospital doesn't want you to do is die. It's very poor form on their part. And... <laughs> And they were afraid I was going to die there. They wanted me to die at the other place, but I just held on for this 21 days, and they didn't know what to do with me, and they still weren't stabilizing my life signs that way, but I'd made progress. I was off that stretcher, and I was in a wheelchair. I was mobile. I was plotting escape. I had two bottles of Jack Daniels to get to. And you know, I would practice. I'd take all my strength, and I'd go about seven feet, and then I'd just fall over in a sweat. And the distance to the nearest elevator was like 80 feet. And I was saying, God, this is going to take forever. And I was sort of conspicuous in this bathrobe with my wheelchair. So they finally wheeled me down the end of this long corridor. And uh, they decided to put me in groups. They didn't know what else. Everybody's shunning me around. I'm wheeled into this room. And it was a, the guy in charge of it was a former NFL football player. He was a middle linebacker. Big cold black and he asked me a question I'm thinking boy I hope he's got a sense of humor <laughs> he asked me to describe my drinking and I told him very seriously that I considered myself a heavy social drinker <laughs> and he said oh really he said well how much do you drink a day I thought oh it's getting tricky <laughs> now if I had something Toward the end, important to do, like I had to go to a bank and sign something or do something like that, I would get on my maintenance schedule so I'd be straight, you know. And that required about a quart a day spaced out so that I could handle everything pretty. And I, my normal consumption was about two quarts a day at that time. And uh, I thought, you know, he's, he's probably as narrow-minded as my doctor. If I, if I tell him I drink a quart a day, he might think I'm an alcoholic. I'm serious, you know. I and so I said, only about two pints. <laughs> it sounded like less, you know. <laughs> Small and sure enough, 
He was narrow-minded. He allowed that I had a problem with alcoholism. Perhaps they had an answer for me. Bless his heart, and I, you know, here I am, a Ph.D. in psychology, and some things that happened to me when I was at Tulane for those that three years. You know that uh, that little uh, paper I did on perception of geomagnetism in bells and homing pigeons. I I was the first one to show in a laboratory setting that uh, any sort of organism at that level could perceive any aspect of the magnetic field. And I'd received a letter from Stockholm from the Nobel Prize Committee. I'm talking about going right to my head. What they'd asked for was some copies of my research and everything, and my name had been placed in nomination. But that doesn't mean that you win. I'm still waiting to get the award. <laughs> I ought to send them my change of address forms, shouldn't I? <laughs> but it's just gone to my head. And here I'm being rolled down there, and this, this guy's got the, you know, a four-year counseling thing, and I got this chip on my shoulder. If I'd only known that uh, they'd all pretty well figured that out, and uh, he'd drawn a short straw, bless his heart, you know, and he'd drawn me. Well, they put me in this magical thing called group. And I'm sort of just rolled in and stuck in the corner. And I listen to all these things you people say and stuff, and I'm in there one week, two weeks, three weeks, 50 days, 57 days. I'm stuck in that group. And this, the remarkable process about all this is that you were doing things called the first, second, and third steps and stuff, and they hadn't asked me anything yet. But the procedure was always the same. On a Friday afternoon, they'd wheel me down to the the big potentate, the guy in charge of all the thing, and he would look over these charts and he'd say, you know, you've just made remarkable progress. And then I'd like to congratulate you. However, we think you can benefit from another week of, of uh, treatment. And by the way, you owe 8700 or 9000 It was always a different amount each week. Yeah. And I would write them a check. Now, they did do something for me there at that treatment center. One of the things, they had a physical rehabilitation in uh, conjunction with it. And they would, I graduated from a wheelchair to a walker. And they were teaching me to walk. And I don't have proprioceptive feedback in my legs. To, to this day, I do not. Uh, but I've learned to walk. I've learned to use other cues. And to maintain my balance, I have to use visual cues. And uh, if the lights go out in here, you'll hear something go boom, and that's me. That's me hitting the floor because I, I still can't tell verticality very well. <laughs> I still have a, no wonder I was falling in the parking lots of all those bar rooms. You know? But uh, they taught me a lot of things like that, and they put me on a rigorous uh, exercise routine. And I was getting some of my health back. Went from a walker to a cane. Oh, I cut a diaper, dapper figure for that cane. So that was important. And they had also done one other thing. They'd introduced me to a strange cult group that called themselves alcoholics. They, they were anonymous alcoholics, but they came in and they would come in. I just marveled at these people. They, they'd come in and always cheerful and they'd share a little bit of their story with you and they'd talk to you about it. They'd said that in order to get out of this place, and that's all I could think of is getting out because I had those two bottles of Jack Daniels. And they'd suggest you get a sponsor. So I'd ask this guy to be my sponsor, and he'd accept it, you know. But the last time that I'd written him that check and everything, one of the substance abuse technicians, technicians came up and he said, uh, do you want to spend the rest of your life here? And I said, uh, no, I've got two bottles of Jack Daniels. I was really telling him that I've got to get to. And he says, as long as you keep writing those checks, you'll be here the rest of your life. 
So the next Friday, they wheel me down there. We think you can profit from another week. And by the way, you owe such and such. And I said, I would love to write you a check, but I'm absolutely broke. The next day, I graduated with high honors. <laughs> and I got my last gold star. <laughs> it was remarkable. My plan was to go home to those two bottles of Jack Daniels. I graduate, and I'm packing all of my belongings. Uh, my suitcase and that sort of thing had disappeared somewhere from hospital transference and everything, but I, I had one of these garbage bags, and I was putting into it uh, a wash basin, a urinal. I know, don't laugh, those things cost $87,000. <laughs> and I was taking them. <laughs> I was taking them. That was the total amount I left at that hospital, $87,000. <laughs> Boy, they saw a mark when I got there, didn't they? Getting ready to leave, and who shows up but that guy I'd asked to sponsor me. His name was Skye. And the reason I'd ask him, I'd ask him for all the wrong reasons. He was a city planner, and he had his master's degree from Harvard, and I thought he might be good enough for me to ask. And I'd ask, and he had accepted. And the first thing he said is, read the big book. And I said, uh, oh, I've done that. And he says, read it and try to understand it this time. And he gave me the true first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, get in the car. Well, if I'd only known, I'd have run at that point if I could have. But I didn't. I said, okay, and I got in the car. And I said, well, what are, we, are you going to take me home? And he says, no, we're going to a meeting first. I went to an 11 o'clock meeting. Then he took me by this mysterious place called the central office. And he showed me all these things and telephones and how everybody was working and everything. And went to an afternoon meeting. And we went to an 8 o'clock meeting that night. I haven't been home. I've still got my sack of goodies. And... <laughs> Finally, about 10 o'clock at night, I said, Tight, Sky, I'm awfully tired. I, he says, well, I want to see where you live anyway. So he drove me out there, and I go into the house and showing him around. And he's uh, showing well, you live here alone? Yes, I live here alone. I make it back to the bedroom. You'll be surprised by this. Uh, but in my absence, I had been robbed. It was a remarkable heist because the stereo and TVs and everything like that were still there, but they'd gotten the liquor, not only, but my main cabinet had been cleaned out. Obviously, the guy either owned a liquor store or a, a bar room, you know, and I was completely, really, my thought processes were that way. I, if I didn't mention anything to Sky, I thought it'd be awkward, and I thought, well, finally Sky left, but I was too tired, too tired to, uh, to go to the store that night. So I thought, well, I'll do it first thing in the morning. And I went to sleep. Next thing I know, the doorbell's ringing. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. It's Sky, get in the car. <laughs> I get dressed and get... And it's like this. For one week, two... He knew the desperation in me, and he just stuck with me. God, what a blessed man he was. And uh, I start getting... You know, I leave the hospital, I've got over two months of sobriety, <clears throat> dry time, and uh, I'm going to these meetings, and the next thing I know, I pick up one of these little chips, you know, for three months, you know, and I'm sort of 
sick in my chest out. But I never had any idea that I was going to join the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought it was, I thought you were quaint, I thought you were lovely people, but it wasn't for me. You see, I'd read those window shades. <laughs> and it seemed like every other word on there was God. And I didn't tell you about my parents were, my parents were extremely religious, very, very religious people. And their religion was atheism. And I remember from the very start, my parents sitting me down and saying, you know, Charles, science can explain, science can explain all the unknowns. Religion is basically for superstitious and uh, unlearned people. And uh, that science can explain all the relationships of the universe that we need, and uh, you will never have to rely upon religion. I remember once in high school, I went away to a thing called MYF. Uh, I liked it because they had girls there, and they, they fed you that evening. It was a Sunday evening sort of thing, a fellowship at the Methodist Church. I went with a friend of mine to this and had a good time. And, I got home and the parents found out about that and uh, they sat me down and said, you can't believe how disappointed we are in your behavior, you know. Ah, my God, I'd gone to church. <laughs> and I got grounded for that. So my association with religion was not an emotional one. It was just of curiosity and I'd read a lot about it, but uh, I had no emotional connection with it. The word God was like any word. I, if you'd have put me on a galvanic skin response, I wouldn't have had a reaction to it. And so when it came to that, I said, well, I can't make those assumptions. That won't work for me. It just won't work. I listened to your talk about spiritual. It's spiritual. It's not religious and everything. I said, yeah, yeah, but listen to them talk, you know. But uh, I bought it pretty well. Uh, but I had to hang around Sky and Sky insisted I get a power greater than myself. you got to get a higher power. And I was telling him I was working the steps. You know how we do. I was ripping them off like merit badges. meant about the same thing to me. And I'd chosen the group as my higher power. Sort of made sense, you know. You you could do things as a group that I didn't have the power as an individual to do, and you'd explain how you could pick that table up, and I couldn't do it by myself, and things. So I I made the group my higher power, and flowed along like that. I remember when I got five months of sobriety, they didn't have a chip for that, for to take me off. So I went down, and well, you told me to change everything. I'd always been Charles, and I became Charlie. You know, I thought big things. I'm changing. You know, all this peripheral stuff, trying to please you. Didn't have a chip on the fifth month, and I was sort of ticked by that. So I went down and bought a Cadillac, white Cadillac. <laughs> so five months, you got to do something. And the strange thing about that was that I hated Cadillacs. I, I didn't like General Motor cars, but I was going to change things. So I thought that was a big change. Yeah. I went to a meeting that night. It was the 449 meeting, and you imagine what their their main theme was. And they had a moderator that was carrying the meeting on, and uh, it was a discussion meeting, and they were discussing this concept of the higher power. I don't know whether you hear yourself in the in the years of an atheist. I don't think so, most of you. But uh, he'd go around the room. It'd be John over there, and he'd say, "My higher power, whom I choose to call God." Have you heard that expression before? <laughs> like if you call it anything else, you're some kind of ninny, you know. And then they'd go over to Mary, and she said, "My higher power, whom I choose to call Jesus." And I think, gosh, that's getting specific. And they're going around the room like that. Now, you know, this eidetic imagery, I'd read all the, I'd read all the conference-approved literature. Some of the great AA comes of age. Guys, that's great, particularly if you're service-oriented. You've got to read that. And, of course, I'd read uh, Bill Wilson's Pass It On. I'd read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. And I love to share at these discussion meetings. Well, I'd give them a paragraph of each, you know. I didn't, I'll cast French and German I can handle, English passably, but I didn't speak good AA because... I'd give them a paragraph out of one of those books and they'd say, well, you just keep coming back. 
I thought they really wanted to see me. <laughs> Came time for me to share that night, and uncharacteristically, I passed. I was getting angry. Yeah, for some reason, I hadn't eaten that day, and I'd been belting down Insure Plus and eating four little meals a day, trying to put the weight back on. It wasn't working, and I was... I hadn't slept well the night before, and uh, I got angry at that subject and the way they were talking. And I was all those things that that little little booklet, uh, Living Sober, says halts, you know, the acronym. And I was I fit the bill pretty well for that. Uh, I think I was born lonely in a way. Finally, that meeting was over. I couldn't wait for it to be over. And I'd always loved the meeting after the meeting. I do pie and coffee well. And uh, Sky and a couple of the guys said, "Well, let's go up to Shoney's and have a." Have some coffee, and I said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I'm a little tired tonight. I'm, I'm just going to go home." This meeting was on the west bank of the Mississippi, in a section of New Orleans called Algiers. And uh, I get in that car and I fire her up, and I think to myself, "You know, you deserve something better than this. You haven't been to the French Quarter of the Vieux Carré in a long time." And my plan was simply to go down there and have a real nice meal kick back and have a nice meal and then go home and go to sleep. I got in the car and I drove off and I had to go to the bridge and get across to the other bank, go down and this bridge, the Crescent City Connection was a, you know how Chamber of Commerce has loved to find little obscure facts, the highest double, longest double cantilevered world, bridge in the world. I start up on this thing and it's two and a half miles across it. Normally, like, on a given day, 140,000 cars cross that bridge. And uh, I start up it, and I get about 200 yards up the main ramp to it. And I hear a voice, just as clear as a bell. And the voice says, 49. And I look at the radio, it's off. And I think, well, why are the bridge police behind me on their loudspeakers on their bullhorn and what's 49 I look in the rearview mirror and there's nothing there uncharacteristically there was not another car on the bridge I drive on about a quarter of a mile and I hear it again not quite as loud 49 and then I don't hear anything and I realize I'm having an auditory hallucination and sweat breaks out on my forehead and I think Christ. and rather than being really fearful I become excited. Thank God, how unusual this is. And I'm going across the bridge and going across, and finally I get to the other side and I take the first exit. And that's Camp Street, exit. I'm going down Camp Street, and that's so symbolic, it's the street of the winos. There's a place about good port wine at about every 75 feet on that street. Huh? I'm going down, and I'm thinking, going down that... Uh, you know, if I go to a nice restaurant, it's about 9.30, and New Orleans is a late town. You, most restaurants are open until midnight or so, but I'll have to tip the maitre d' an exorbitant amount to get a table. I don't have reservations. And he'll say, look at this loser. He's by himself. Doesn't even have an escort. All these things are just going a mile a minute. And I look up ahead, and the main street that you cross to get into the French Quarter is the Canal Street, big, broad boulevard. And Look up ahead, and on Canal Street, there's the Sheridan Hotel. Now, I never had a DWI, and I, I know a lot about the hotels in New Orleans because the attorneys had advised me, and said, if you drink, you just don't drive. 
leave your car wherever it is. Said, I'd say, why? And they said, well, you're eminently suable. If you just graze someone, they'll own you. And I'd always followed that advice. I found it real good advice because one of the things, I'd park it in a commercial garage, and for any of you people that are going to go out and do some further experimenting, it's a wonderful way to find your car the next day. You know, it works every time. You could reach into your pocket and pull out that receipt, and you could find your provided information there. I remember one time I did that, though. I was walking down Royal Street. I was having trouble finding my car, and I went into this bar called Sloppy Jim's, and I gave the bartender my slip, and I said, John, I'm having trouble finding my car. And he looks at it. I said, you know where it is? And he says, yeah. I said, where? And he says, San Francisco. <laughs> Things happen to alcoholics, you know. It's just... But I, I'd, I'd uh, crashed in this Sheridan Hotel several times, and I thought... The solution came to me at that point. I said, you know, uh, I'll just go get a room. I'll order up room service, have something to eat, watch a little TV, and then next morning I'll go over and call Sky. Everything will be fine. And I'm starting to get excited. And I sort of noticed that the neon signs on things is brighter than normal. It's just intensely blue. I finally get to Canal Street and I've got to turn right for about a half a block and drive in a motor entrance to this hotel in 50-story high Sheridan. And I noticed that although people live down there and it's 24 hours, there seemed to be more people on the street. It was more exciting. And I was getting a little impatient. Finally, I make a right and I pull in there and I pull that car up and I get out and the valet parking guy comes up and says, Sir, and I said, Checking in. He says, Fine, luggage. I said, Of course not. I gave him a $20 bill and said, just take care of the car. I walk into the side entrance, one of these big electric doors, and, doo, doo, you know, and I walk in there, and I, there it is. There's this huge atrium to the right. To the left, there are all these seating arrangements and big leather chairs around Persian carpets, and everything's sort of brass, and there's a mezzanine up there, and it's got one of these big pods playing on a Yamaha, Yamaha uh, player grand piano that plays those discs, you know, and I... I swear it's Gershwin himself playing Rhapsody in Blue. It's the most beautiful thing. And, and it's, the lobby's just full. And over at the back is a bank of elevators and there's a registration desk. And over to the right in this atrium is a huge wraparound bar. And uh, there must be 300 people in there. And it's just... And it was the, the joy of my youth, the laughter and the, the gaiety and the, and the tinkle of glass and the ice in it, those glasses that sounded like fine barbarian crystal and at that instant I understand the relevance of 49 I think you see $49 was the cost of a liter of Jack Daniels at any Sheraton International at that time all during this time I'd ask Sky I said Sky in the big book it says there'll come that time when we have no defense against that first drink and the solution is spiritual what does that mean you have to redouble spiritual efforts and he said that means you have to pray your rear off. You have to get in immediate contact with your higher power. I'd love to do that, but my higher power is having coffee at Shoney's across the river. And I'm left there alone. I realize I'm relapsing. I'd always toyed with the idea. I never thought I was going to stick around. I thought eventually I was going to drink. But it was always going to be tomorrow. And I'd use just bare knuckling it for five months. And I was so proud of myself, you know, five months. I thought just getting a day or two was a miracle. But here I had five months. And I, I must admit I was playing the idea with a little insurance because when I did drink, I might last longer than a few hours. 
I might last a day or two. I might actually enjoy it a little bit before I conked off, but inevitably I would die when I drank. You know, just beyond a shadow of a doubt. I hit upon a novel idea, because so many of you had said, just use our God. And I, I thought, God, that's... I just can't think of anything more unreasonable than that. I know you were well-meaning, but use our God. If you, here, you spent a lifetime of faith and everything, and you're asking me to do that right away. But I, I thought, well, I will. I'll use their God. I'll say that prayer, just so I can tell Sky I did it. And I sort of got amused by the idea of using your God. And so I said the first prayer I'd ever said. Oh, I'd said the Serenity Prayer and the Lord's Prayer, but I did that just as a matter of rope memory so I wouldn't stick out. But I paid no attention to the words. And I'd like to tell you it was something beautiful like the, and elegant like the Serenity Prayer. It's something as noble and meaningful as the prayer, that the, the alcoholic prayer, uh, God help me, which is probably answered more than any other prayer. But I said the prayer of a spoiled child, an indolent spoiled child, and I threw down the gauntlet to your God in that hotel lobby. And I said in a loud, loud voice, people turned around and looked at me. I said, all right, God, if you exist, you'll stop me. For an instant there, I knew something with real fear. I'd heard about your God, and I thought something as splendid as me would surely have, have something in great store. I didn't know whether the ground was going to open to swallow me or a bolt of... Pure gold lightning would hit me in the in the head and just do me in and stop me right there. And what seemed like a, a long time, it was probably two or three seconds, nothing happened. It was like that yoke of responsibility had been removed. I knew I was relapsing, I knew it was then, and there was nothing that could stop me. And so it was like, whew, it's over. I'm going to go do the thing I do, I'm going to die, it's over. And I walked across that lobby like I owned it. I got up to the registration desk, yeah, it's 9.30, and there's these velvet ropes set up, and there's a line, and there's three people registering. And I'm thinking, this is, uh, I'm getting all these great old alcoholic traits back, and I'm getting impatient, and I'm one foot to the other, and I'm standing in this line, and it seemed a long time, and finally the little girl that was registering, the middle girl, looked up, and she had, remember her hair was matted on her forehead, and she had that dazed look of someone pulling a double, and she said, Next, and I was ready. I was ready. I walked up there. I threw not down, not a green and not a gold, but a platinum American Express, and I threw a gold Sheridan preferred on top of that and said, I'll have a room on the 46th floor. And as you see, the 46th floor was a room of all suites there from crashing in the past, and they had a, they had a private bar up there that kept you riffraff out. I thought it'd be the perfect place to hold up, and with any luck, I'd get three days and then die. <laughs> and she looked up and looked sort of puzzled. She said, "Sir," and I said, "I'd like a room on the 46th floor, please." She said, "Do you have a reservation?" I said, "No, but these are my credentials." And she said, "I don't know who you think you are, but there's no room at the end." And she said, "I couldn't get you a room in this town." It's Far east is Biloxi, as far west as Lafayette, Baton Rouge is full. The entire area is completely booked, don't you know? And I said, no what? She said, Republican National Convention started today. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at her, no room at the end. I got this smile on my face and I said, you know what? And she says, what? And I said, there's a higher power and his name is God. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
And without hesitation, she reached down and picked up that house phone and said, Give me security. I got a live one at the front desk. <laughs> I grabbed those cards up and I beat a hasty retreat. I got there when they were working on about their third <laughs> cup of coffee. It's Shoney's and Saddle in there. I didn't say anything. I had this rosy glow, this feeling, and this. And it, three days later, I told Sky what had happened. And I said, I don't understand this feeling I have. And he says, Perhaps the first time in your life it's the absence of fear. He says, It's what we call God's grace. And I was just so excited about it. And he says, but I wouldn't tell anybody about that for a while, if I were you. I says, why? He says, we've got work to do. The sky was thorough. We worked the 12 steps as lined out in the first 164 pages of that text, Alcoholics Anonymous. And with great rigor. One of the things he did, he took that uh, Cadillac and he says, I want you to donate that to charity. And I says, why? He says, you've got something to learn about humility. So I donated it to charity. He went down and picked out a five-year-old Chevrolet. He said, you don't like General Motors? No. One that had visible rust on it. And he said, you have to promise to drive this car for three years. And I did. I promised him and I did. He took those credit cards, and it wasn't enough that he cut them up, but he mailed them all back to the companies and said, question their sanity for extending me credit in the first place, that I was, a, that I was an unreliable character. And I'll tell you, that can work wonders on your, on your attempts to ever get credit for a while. But I embarked on this wonderful road, this wonderful road, and he got me in, in, the, in the service, and the first thing he said, he says, you know, the home group needs ashtrays. And we're still smoking in groups back then, you know. <laughs> he said, you feature yourself some kind of scientist. He says, I want you to read and study all you can about, about x-rays. And that sort of ticked me off. I said, I'll show him. <laughs> I went to the library and I worked and worked and worked. I worked up an 18-page paper with bibliography. I knew everything. I can tell you things about Mel Mac ashtrays that you wouldn't believe. <laughs> I get that paper and I'm so proud and I hand it to him and in his car when he came by to pick me up and I says there and he just tossed it in the back seat didn't even look at it says buy 12 of the best next day I did so and I get back in the car with Sky and I got these and I said look at these ashtrays I can't wait to show everybody he says oh you can't take credit for that he says you know where they keep the ashtrays and I says yeah he says you've got to slip them back with no one knowing it and you can never tell anybody uh <laughs> he says in fact I want you to do something like that and not even tell me Every day that you can, because you'll learn something about doing for others, not expecting anything in return. And I did, and I'm grateful for that. And it's a beautiful way to live. He made me the H and I representative for my group. Oh, I thought that was important. I got involved in that, and just next thing I knew, I was involved in everything that Alcoholics Anonymous would come along and let me let me do. Little offices in my home group, eventually alternate GSR, GSR. And I became a DCM. And uh, God, I just loved area assembly. I'd just go uh, just so nosy to watch everything happening there. It's a beautiful process. And you know, in 1995, a strange thing happened. On the third ballot, I was elected delegate from Louisiana to go to the conference in New York. And that's a humbling experience. God, what a beautiful thing. And if anybody tells you it's politics, it's not. 
Once they invented the hat, they took politics out of it altogether. You notice that when you notice the parking lot, there's probably someone running for delegate with a bumper sticker back there. <laughs> but, uh, it just, God, it's a wonderful, wonderful life. You know, the second year of the conference, when it was over, I was staying over and uh, going to visit some friends of mine up there and everything. And everybody leaves on Sunday afternoon. It's just, it was really lonely after that full week. And I suddenly said, you know what, I really need a meeting. I need a meeting. And so I called the intergroup office, you know, separate from just the Manhattan intergroup. And I said, uh, I'm at the corner of uh, Broadway and 49th Street. I uh, wonder if there's a meeting around here about 4 o'clock that I could walk to. He said, well, there's one uh, about seven blocks from you, but uh, he said, uh, you're from out of town, I said, yes. He said, I wouldn't go down there if I were you. He says, if you wait till seven, there's one at the church just down the street from your location, and that would be a lot safer for you. I said, no, man, I, four o'clock would really be nice for me. I said, just tell me where it is. He said, no, I, and I'm, I'm sort of persistent. Finally, he says, where are you from? And I says, New Orleans. He says, oh, hell, you can walk down there. <laughs> I had my streetwise pass. I get down there, and you know that feeling of deja vu, and uh, I'm walking down there, and I just can't place it all, and nothing's clicking, and I finally get to this place, and it's third floor walk up, you know, old brownstone, and there's just a circle and triangle that says ring bell, and I push that bell, and that door buzzed, and I open that door, and I start in, and I look back catty corner across, and it's 8th Avenue, I look over there. And 70 feet from there was Sullivan's Bar, where I stood with those tears running down my face. And the answer was across the street, but I wasn't ready. I wouldn't have crossed it. I was with great disdain make fun of that circle and triangle. I went up there, and it was a meeting. And uh, it's just been one exciting thing after another. And I owe, I owe all of you that. And I owe it to those that to come in to introduce them to this. It's such a wonderful thing. The privilege to speak to you here at the Cornhuskers. Thank you so much. I love you all.